stories in the book of Exodus, and you, you read a passage like that in Exodus 1 with all the crazy names and just, the, frankly, the crazy stuff going on, and you see genocide, and you see murder, and you see slavery, and you see oppression, and you see all these horrible things, and then you say, thanks be to God. Like, you sit there and you're like, what is going on? How, how does this show up in the Word of God? And, and is this something that I, I look at something like that happening in the world, and can I actually even be thankful for that? Because one of the things about the Bible is that the Bible meets us in the midst of real life. The Bible meets us in the midst of a world that is messed up, in a world where there is all sorts of pain and suffering and trial and heartache and oppression. And so we look at a passage like that, and in some ways we're like, I don't exactly know what to do with this, but then we look at our world and we say, you know what, if I'm honest, sometimes I don't even really know what to do with the world. And that's why we have the Scriptures. Because in the midst of that, God is showing us that he's with us, that he is near to us. I'm excited to start this series in the book of Exodus, and I want you to look at this as we're going through the book of Exodus, not as if we're stepping away from our spiritual formation series. So if you've been around here, you know we've been walking through this series on spiritual formation. We've been asking, what does it look like to practice the way of Jesus together for the life of the world? Because the truth is that for every single one of us in this room, you are being formed by something. You are being shaped by something. There is some story, there is some narrative, some way of seeing the world, some concept of who God is and who you are and what life in the world is all about that is shaping us into a particular image. And that's why we're looking at the book of Exodus, because the book of Exodus is the story of how God does that. The book of Exodus is the story of who God is as he reveals himself, and it's the story of who we are as human beings, and it's the story of what it looks like to live in God's world. It's the story of how God takes for himself a people, and he shapes us and he forms us by the power of his Spirit. And if you don't get that, you will miss the whole point. You will miss the whole point of spiritual formation. You will miss the whole point of Christianity. Because what you see in the book of Exodus and what you see all throughout the scriptures is that God's grace comes first. God's grace is primary. We've been talking the past few weeks about this idea of Sabbath, this practice of, of slowing down to rest in God and in his grace. But that very command, that very gift that God gave us is grounded in the story of God's grace. It's actually grounded in the Exodus. Exodus chapter 30 and Exodus chapter 19, both two different places where the Lord talks about this. He says that, that, why do you do this? You do this because I am the Lord your God who brought you up out of the house of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You were once slaves, but now you've been set free. So, so we practice these spiritual practices because this is a way of remembering the grace and the freedom that I have brought to you. We're going to press down in, in Exodus chapter 1 today, but first, I want to give you kind of a 30,000-foot view of the book of Exodus. Here's kind of how the book of Exodus goes. First 15 chapters of the book of Exodus is all about how God brings his people out of Egypt. So these are the stories that, even if you've just been around popular culture, you've probably heard. 
stories of these plagues that God sends on the people of Egypt, the story of, of God parting the Red Sea. This is what Disney and Charlton Heston make movies about. They're these amazing stories, and it's great stuff. But then as you keep reading in the book of Exodus, you get to Exodus chapter 16, and you realize there's another problem that God needs to address. Because the people of Israel, even though they've been brought out of slavery, they have been brought out of Egypt, they begin to grumble against the Lord. And they start talking about how great was it when we were back in Egypt? How great was it when we were slaves? God's delivered them from external slavery, but he still needs to deliver them from internal slavery. He needs to set them free from their sin. And that's why I want you, as we're coming to the book of Exodus, recognize this is not just the story of some group of people 3,500 years ago. This is the story of all of us. This is the story, wherever you are on your spiritual journey, this is the story of all of us. Some of us are, are still in Egypt. We're still like these Israelites living in Egypt. We're still living in slavery to the forces of evil, still living in slavery to our sin. And some of us, we've come out of Egypt and we're, we're walking through this wilderness like the people of Israel did, and we'll read about that. And we're walking along, but we're still thinking, oh, how good would it be to go back to Egypt? How good would it be to go back to slavery? And the story of Exodus, as we walk through this, it is the story of God, how God makes us fully and truly free. How he doesn't just set us free from external suffering and external realities, but he sets us free from slavery of the heart. One of the great things about the book of Exodus is that it's a historical narrative. So it comes to us in, in the context of history. So this is something that really happened to real flesh and blood people living in a real time in a real place in the real world. And yet it is something that transcends any one historical moment. This is a story that has given hope to people throughout the ages. From the earliest Christians, the, the ages of the apostles, all the way to the civil rights movement, all the way to oppressed peoples all over the world today, it is a story that gives hope when it seems like everything is hopeless. And I want to see that today from Exodus chapter 1. So two big truths we're going to see today in Exodus chapter 1. And these are truths that if you, if you keep these, if you hold both of these in tension, they will give you a, a framework to navigate the best and the worst times of life. So two key realities. Here they are. One, God is writing his story. God is writing his story. God is working his plan and his purposes for his people in the world. But there's another one you got to hold in tension with it, and it's this. Our stories don't always make sense. Our stories don't always make sense to us. God is writing his story, but our stories don't often make sense to us. First, God's writing his story. Look at Exodus chapter 1, verse 1. These are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, each with his household. Reuben, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, Benjamin, Dan, Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. All the descendants of Jacob were 70 persons. Joseph was already in Egypt. Then Joseph died and all his brothers and all that generation. But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. Now here's the first thing you need to know about the book of Exodus. The book of Exodus doesn't actually start 
with the book of Exodus. The book of Exodus is part two of a five-part story, of a five-part book that Moses is writing. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. It's often called the Pentateuch, the, the book of five, or it's called in Hebrew literature, it's called the Torah. And it's all one story of what God is doing. It's so fascinating. If, if you if you study the Hebrew grammar of Exodus 1, it actually starts with what's called the Vav consecutive in Hebrew. It's just a Jeopardy term. But like what it actually, what it actually means is that, is that um, it's often translated by the word and or by the word now. And the whole point is that this is a continuation. This is a continuation of the book of Genesis. It is the next section in the story. And so if that's true, then we need to understand the backstory. We need to understand the context. Otherwise, we're going to miss some of the things that are happening. We're going to miss some of the illusions that Moses is drawing in this passage. I am um, currently on a text thread uh, with, with the guys in my discipleship group. And there are many wild and wonderful things that happen uh, on this text thread. And um, sometimes I understand it, and there are certain things, there are certain references, there are certain things that are said on the text thread that I don't completely understand. And the reason is because all of these guys are avid fans of the show Parks and Rec. And I, I got to be honest with you, I know I'm supposed to like Parks and Rec, especially now that I live in Indiana. I'm supposed to be all into it. But the fact is, I made it through one season and then I tapped out. So these guys, they've got all these references and all these quotes from Parks and Rec just kind of flying around. And I'm sitting there sometimes and I have no clue what's going on. And the fact is they're probably going to be blowing up my phone here in a minute with Ron Swanson memes. But uh, that's why I left my phone down there. It's kind of what, though, this passage is like. I hope that's not sacrilegious. But, like, this is, what, this is kind of what it's like. If you don't know the story of Genesis, then you're going to miss some of the illusions here in Exodus because Exodus picks up where Genesis left off. So what I want to do uh, before we jump into Exodus chapter 1 is I want to do a flyover of the book of Genesis. So relax. Uh, it's only 50 chapters long. I will get you out of here in time for the Super Bowl tonight. So <laughs> Cliff Notes version. Here we go. Genesis is the story of humanity. Genesis is the story of how God created, all the way back in Genesis chapter 1, God created human beings, it says, in his image, after his likeness. And then God says this, Genesis 1.28, And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. God takes human beings. He forms them of the dust of the ground. He says, I want you to reflect me, and I want you to represent me, and I want you to relate to me, and I want you to rule over the world that I've made, and I want you to fill it. But as you keep reading the story, you get a couple chapters in, and what does humanity do? We decide that we want to rebel against God. We decide that we want to be our own gods, and in the process, we create this messed up world that we live in, and we are helplessly and hopelessly lost. But the good news is that God refuses to give up on us. And God says, I'm going to send a deliverer. I am going to send one who's going to come, who is going to set you free from the curse that you've brought on yourselves, who's going to crush the enemy, who's going to crush, Genesis 3, the head of the serpent, this enemy who seeks to destroy you. Genesis 3, 15, that's what he says. Speaking to the serpent, he says, and I will put enmity, I will put hostility between you, serpent, and the woman. And between your offspring and her offspring, he shall crush your head and you shall bruise his heel. 
So God gives this promise. A descendant of Eve is going to set us free. It's going to crush the head of the serpent. But you keep reading Genesis, and it doesn't happen right away. As a matter of fact, things actually go from bad to worse. And you start to see murder. And you start to see violence. And you start to see oppression. And it eventually gets so bad that God wipes, the, he wipes humanity out with a flood. And then God begins to rebuild. And eventually in Genesis chapter 12, he calls this man named Abram. And he says, Abram, I am going to make a great nation out of you. And I am going to bring blessing to the entire world through you. Genesis 12. And I will make you a great nation. And I will bless you and I will make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Genesis 15, this is what he says. He says, and he, God, brought Abram outside and said, look toward heaven and number the stars if you are able to number them. And then he says, so shall your offspring be. And Abram believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. God gives him this promise. And then God throws this curveball into the promise. Genesis 15, 13. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there. And they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. File that away as we go through the book of Exodus. And Abram, what does he do? He believes God. He trusts God. He sets out following God, and he follows him, holding on to this promise for 25 years. But then he runs into a bit of a problem. Like, Abram's old at this point. Like, he is 99 years old, and his wife Sarah is 90. And I know very little about medicine, but I have enough high school biology to know that they are not having a kid at that point. And Abram knows it too. They weren't stupid back then. Abram knows it too. And so he cries out. He actually complains to God about it. And God comes along and God says, I will do what I said I will do. Regardless of how it looks on the surface, I am the God who always keeps his promises. And lo and behold, a few months later, Sarah finds out she's pregnant. And you keep reading this story. They have this son named Isaac, and Isaac has this son named Jacob, and Jacob has 12 sons, and his favorite son is named Joseph with a technicolor dream coat, and his brothers are, are insanely jealous of him. And, and so what do they do? They take him, and they actually sell him. Listen to this. This is important. They, they sell him into slavery in Egypt, and he ends up in a prison for a crime he didn't commit, and yet even as a slave in a prison in Egypt, God is with Joseph. And through some supernatural intervention, God raises him up and he makes him the prime minister of Egypt. And he uses Joseph to bring famine relief to people all over the Middle East. He is blessing the nations through the descendant of Abraham, just like he said that he would do all the way back in Genesis chapter 12. And eventually, Joseph's father and his brothers, they start running out of food. And so they're like, let's go get food in Egypt. And they go down to Egypt, and they think that Joseph's dead. And Joseph says, surprise, it's me. And at this point, they're freaking out. But Joseph knows that God has been working behind the scenes. Joseph knows that behind the suffering and behind the evil that were inflicted on him, 
God is working to fulfill his purposes. Behind the evil actions of Joseph's brother, God is working to bring blessing to them and blessing to the entire world. And so he brings his brothers down to Egypt and he, he gives them this land and he takes care of them. And then the book of Genesis ends here, Genesis 50. As for you, he's, he's speaking to his brothers, as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive even as they are today. That's where the book of Genesis ends. And then we come to Exodus chapter 1 where we are today, and look what God is doing. God is still writing his story. God is still fulfilling his promises. Look again, verse 6. Then Joseph died, and all his brothers, and all that generation, but the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. Where have you heard that before? Genesis 1, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Genesis 12, I will make you a great nation. Genesis 15, Abram, look at the stars. If you can count them, that's how your descendants will be. Verse 6, verse 7 rather, they multiplied and they grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. Joseph died, his brothers died, that whole generation died, but God's promise didn't die. God kept his promise. He is making them into a great nation. He has taken this one old man and, and, and his old wife who can't have kids. And he gives them a son and he gives him a son and he gives them 12 sons and he turns them into 70 people. And most scholars estimate that after 400 years in Egypt, by the time of the Exodus, there are about three and a half to four and a half million Israelites living in Egypt at this time. God keeps his promises. God is writing his story. So first reality we have to keep in this hand over here is that God is writing his story. No matter how things look on the surface, no matter how dark, no matter how ugly it looks, behind the scenes, God is writing his story. And yet there's another reality that we have to keep in mind if we're going to live honestly in the world. And it's this, God is writing his story, but sometimes our stories don't make sense to us. Our stories don't always make sense. God's working out his plan. But look at his people. His people are suffering. His people are in slavery. There is real pain and real oppression. They have been enslaved and beaten and oppressed and murdered. And eventually, there's going to be attempted genocide. I just want to pause here for, for just a minute and just kind of share this. Like, this is actually one of the reasons why I'm a Christian. Maybe that sounds weird to you. But I, I'm actually a Christian. One of the reasons is because of the reality of pain and suffering in the world. Because we all know, we look at the world around us, we look at our own lives, there is real pain and there is real suffering. And what I absolutely love about the Bible is the Bible never shies away from that. The Bible is completely honest about that. Let me ask you, how else, without that framework, how else do you deal with the reality of pain and suffering in the world? I mean, think about it. If there's no God, if there's no God, how do you come to terms with evil and suffering? We're all just a random collection of atoms. 
We're all just the product of raw materials plus time plus chance. We've all just developed from some lower life form by some meaningless, haphazard process. And the law of nature is survival of the fittest. So why shouldn't the strong oppress the weak? Why shouldn't the rich eat the poor? What makes genocide wrong? It's just the way it is. It's just the law of nature. It's just the survival of the fittest. If there's no God, that's what you're left with. But when you get to the Bible, what you find is a righteous God who created human beings in his image, after his likeness, with irreducible and inviolable dignity, who hates injustice and oppression, and who promises that it will not have the final word who promises, I am near to the brokenhearted, and I save those who are crushed in spirit. And when you keep reading and you get to the New Testament, you find that God isn't just a God who stays up in the heavens where it's nice and safe and comfortable, but becomes a human being, and he steps into our suffering with us. Listen, you're here today, if you're in pain, and if you're dealing with struggle and trial and suffering. Listen, God takes your pain so seriously that he stepped into it to experience it with you. Get to the end of Exodus 2, where we'll be in a few weeks. You read these words. During those days, many days, the king of Egypt died. And the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery, and they cried out to God for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God, and God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. God saw. God remembered. God heard. God knew. Beautiful, hope-filled reality. But here's the thing. That's Exodus chapter 2. You read Exodus chapter 1, and you read it just from from the lens of the people of Israel, and it's like, where is God? It's like God is absent. And some of you right now, you feel like you're in Exodus chapter 1 right now. And have you ever experienced that feeling? Have you ever wondered, have you ever asked, God, do you care? God, do you see? God, do you hear? God, Do you see the way that people use me and take advantage of me? God, do you see the way that my spouse treats me? God, do you see the abuse that I've endured and the pain that I carry? God, do you know the crushing loneliness that I feel? God, do you hear me when I'm crying in the night? Do you see? Do you know? Do you hear Listen, if you have asked those questions, if you are asking those questions now, you're in good company. Because this is the common experience of the people of God in the Bible and of the people of God throughout history. The Bible is honest about that fact that sometimes we can't see what God is doing. Sometimes it seems like he's absent. Look what they're experiencing here. Look at verse 8. Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Therefore, they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. 
This is really instructive for the way that oppression works. Look, look what Pharaoh does here. What does he begin doing? He creates a narrative. These foreigners, we've got to do something about these immigrants. We've got to do something about these refugees. They're not real Egyptians. We need to make sure they don't destroy our nation. This is, this is the pattern of oppression. It's the pattern in Exodus. It was the pattern in Hitler's Germany. It's been the pattern at different ways, even in our own history. He starts out with fear-mongering. And then he uses it as justification to oppress them. Verse 12. But the more, I love this, but the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and the more they spread abroad. God's still writing his story. God is still, in spite of Pharaoh, carrying out his purposes. So Pharaoh doesn't give up. Verse 15, then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shifra and the other Pua, when you serve as midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool, if it is a son, you shall kill him. But if it's a daughter, he shall live. Slavery doesn't work. I'm going to start slaughtering them. Kill the baby boys because if I can do that, then I can breed them out. I can exterminate this entire race. of This is genocide that he's trying here. Look what happens, verse 17. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. God is working. He's working behind the scenes through these midwives. So Pharaoh calls them in, verse 18. The king of Egypt called the midwives and said to them, why have you done this? Like, can you imagine the gall of this guy? Why have you done this? Why haven't you killed these babies in the delivery room? What kind of moral monster are you, Shifra and Pua? Right? How backwards is this, though? But listen, this is the way it works. And this is something that you need to go into this. If you're going to follow Jesus and if you're going to work for justice in the world, you need to go into this with your eyes wide open. Some people aren't going to like it. And they will try to turn the tables on you. And they will try to make you feel guilty for doing the wrong thing. And you will take a stand for what is true and what is right. And they will try to shame you and try to blame you and try to make you out to be some sort of a moral monster. It is that way in our society. It has been that way in every society in the history of the world. Since Genesis 3, go all the way back, right? Genesis 3, the serpent has been trying to destroy the seed of the woman, has been trying to stamp out and degrade human life, to destroy the image of God, to degrade the most vulnerable, infants and children and immigrants and refugees, and the poor and the marginalized, and the disabled, and the people that society casts aside. If you study the nuances of this text, you actually see, and you'll see this all throughout Exodus, Pharaoh stands as a representative for the seed of the serpent. And the midwives stand on the side of the seed of the woman. This fight for justice is spiritual warfare. And God calls his people to holy resistance. So look how they respond. I actually love it. It's, very, it's really sarcastic, actually. They're mocking Pharaoh with this response. Look at verse 19. The midwives said to Pharaoh, ah, it's because the Hebrew women aren't like the Egyptian women. They're vigorous. They, they give birth before the midwife comes. You know those Hebrew women? Like, they're hardcore. They, like, they have the baby and they're chopping lumber by the time we even get there, right? And God... God protects them. This is amazing. Pharaoh buys it. Or maybe just ignores it. I don't know. But verse 20, 
So God dealt well. God protected them with the midwives. And the people multiplied and grew very strong. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. Verse 22, then Pharaoh commanded all his people, every son that is born to the Hebrews you shall cast into the Nile, but every daughter you shall let live. And we'll come back to that next week. What you see all throughout the Exodus is that Pharaoh keeps trying to, to exterminate the Israelites. Tries to destroy them over and over and over and again. But over and over and over again, they increase and they multiply. For all his attempts to destroy the people of God, Pharaoh is unwittingly serving the purpose of God. Listen, there is real evil in the world. This is really evil. This is horrifically evil what he's doing here. And yet God is working behind the scenes for the good of his people. He's making them into a great nation. Not just numerically. He's not just preserving their lives. He's preserving their distinctive identity as the people of God. And he's using their suffering to teach them you were made for something better. Their pain, you find, drives them to cry out to God. And ultimately, he's going to use it to show them himself, to reveal his glory, to redeem them and bring them to himself, to live with them. He says, I will be your God and you will be my people. And listen, I'm not God, and so I don't know everything that he might be doing in your life. And I don't know all the reasons that he takes us through the pain and the suffering and the trials that he takes us through. But I, I can look back on times in my life and see how he's taught me these things. How he used pain and suffering and times when my story absolutely didn't make sense to teach me to long for something better. How he actually used it to make me something better, to make me something that I never would have become any other way. And the best thing was that he showed me his glory and that he was revealed himself to me and he said, I am here and I am with you and I'm not going anywhere. This is how God works in the lives of his people. He worked this way in the life of Joseph. He works this way in the Exodus. He works this way ultimately in the ultimate redemption we have in Jesus Christ. He brings glory through suffering. He brings life through death. God is writing his story. So you've got to keep those in mind. Both of those are true. God is writing his story, and our stories sometimes don't make sense. So what do you do with that? What do we do with those truths? And I want to wrap up by, by simply asking you two questions. I think there are two questions that the text begs of us. Two questions. So here they are. One, who do you fear? Who do you fear? Verse 17, but the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them. Verse 21, and because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. They feared God. They feared God. Now, here's the thing. The normal response would be to fear Pharaoh. He is an autocratic dictator. He is the most powerful man in the most powerful nation in the world. He is a genocidal megalomaniac who can have them killed on the spot, and he gives them a direct order, and they say, no, nah, I don't think we're going to do that. Where do they get that kind of courage? It's because of this. It's because God was bigger to them than Pharaoh was. It's because they feared God rather than man. Because listen, when you fear God, you don't have to fear anything else. When you fear God, you don't have to fear anything else. 
Here's what it means to fear God. It means that we take God seriously. It means that we take God more seriously than anything else in the world. It means that we recognize that God is God. He is the king of the universe. He is the righteous judge of the living and the dead, that he sees everything, that we live all of our lives, every moment of our days before the face of God. And if we're the enemies of God, that is a terrifying thing. But if we're the people of God, for the people that he has bought with his grace and brought into relationship with himself, that is the most comforting thing in all the world. Because we know that the God of the universe is with us and he is for us. In ancient Egypt, if you study ancient Egypt, the Pharaoh was considered a God. He was considered the, the incarnation kind of, the, 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 the earthly representative of Ra, the sun god. He's treated like a God. And this is what Pharaoh is saying to these midwives. He is saying, I am your God. I am your Lord. I have the power of life and death. So fear me. And I love the irony in this story. Because Pharaoh thinks he's so strong. And he thinks, I can exterminate the Israelites by killing off all the, all the males, all the men. And he's thinking, these women, they're going to be pushovers. They're, they're not a threat. They're weak and they're powerless. And what you see in Exodus 1 and 2 is that God actually uses five women to defeat Pharaoh's plan. God uses five women to bring down the most powerful man and the most powerful nation on earth because as god said the seed of the woman is going to crush the head of the serpent so listen the world might see you as weak the world might see you as powerless whether you're a man or a woman the world might see you that way but you are never too weak and you are never too small and you are never too powerless to be used by god these women fear god and because of that they aren't afraid of anything else so let me ask you what do you fear? What do you fear? Because the fact is, whatever you fear, that's what you worship. That's your God. That's the thing you take most seriously. So what is it that keeps you up at night? What you fear is what you worship. What you fear is what drives you in life. For some of us, we're afraid of professional failure. We fear financial loss. And so we worship professional success. We worship financial security. We work ourselves to death in the pursuit of success, and we will compromise anything it takes to get ahead. For some of us, we fear loneliness. So we worship relationships. And then we end up in these toxic relationships. Or maybe we become the toxic one. Maybe we run from one thing to the next. Some of us fear disappointing people. So we worship acceptance and performance, and we spend our entire lives trying to prove ourselves. Some of us, just frankly, we fear missing out. We fear missing out on the pleasures of sin. And so we worship our impulses. And so we, we settle for the pleasures of sin rather than the, the, the wonder of the pleasures of God. Some of us fear popular opinion. And we worship at the altar of social acceptability. And we're afraid to go public with our faith. And we're afraid to be different. Some of us just fear losing control. And we try to keep ourselves on the throne of the universe. And we try to live life on our terms rather than trusting God. I, like, I don't know what it is. What is it for you? What do you fear? What do you worship? What do you take more seriously than anything else? Because the fact is that all those other gods 
all those other fears will eventually kill you. But the one true God, he was killed for you. He died in order to give you life. So learn to fear God. Learn to trust God. Learn to take God seriously, and you won't need to fear anything else. What do you fear? Secondly, what story is defining you? What story is defining you? Are you defined by the story of God, or are you defined by the story of Pharaoh? Because here's the story of Pharaoh. Here's the narrative of Pharaoh, the narrative of the world. It tells you that you are a slave. It tells you that God doesn't care, that God is silent, that God is absent, that God is completely out to lunch, and he doesn't care. The story of God tells you that you're not a slave. It tells you that you're a son, that you're a daughter, that you're a child of the God of the universe if you're in Christ, that your loving Father hasn't given up on you, and he hasn't forgotten you, and he hasn't abandoned you, and he is working behind the scenes for, his, for your good and for his glory, that even when you can't see it, even when you don't understand what in the world he's doing and it doesn't make sense, he is making you something great. He is making you something that you would never become any other way. Even when I can't see it, he is with me and he is for me and he is not walking away from me. Just practically speaking, let's just bring this down to how we live in this. This is why we need the scriptures. This is why we need this book. Because this book is not just a dead book. This is the story of God where he reminds us that he is with us, that he sees that he hears, that he knows. When everything else in the world says God is absent, it reminds us God is with us. That's why we need the scriptures. This is why we need each other. This is why we need biblical community because sometimes my faith gets weak and sometimes I forget that God is with me and I need to be reminded of that truth. It's also why we need the Lord's Supper. That's why we take the Lord's Supper every week here at Soma. Because this meal that we're about to take, it roots us in the story of God. When it seems like God is absent, you hold this bread in your hands and you dip it in the cup and you're reminded, he gave me his body. He gave me his blood. His body was broken for us. His blood was shed for us. He identifies with our suffering and more than that, he identifies with our sin. He takes our sin on himself and he dies in our place and he rises again. See, the truth is, we've all got evil. We've all got sin inside of us. It's easy for us to look at a story like this or frankly to look at the world around us and say, oh, all those bad people out there, people like Pharaoh, people who are doing these, these horrible atrocities. But the truth is, we all have sin and evil and oppression living inside of us. We have all turned our backs on God. We have all tried to be our own gods. We have all tried to kick him off the throne of the universe and live for our own kingdoms, and we all need his grace. But the body of Jesus was broken for you. The blood of Jesus was shed for you. He died the death that we deserve to die, and the good news is that he didn't stay in the grave. He came out of the grave and he trampled the gates of sin and death and hell in that seed of the woman all the way back in Genesis 3.15, crushed the head of the serpent to set us free and to give us life. And evil and pain and suffering will not have the final word. 
Life will have the final word. Resurrection will have the final word. Jesus will have the final word. So as we come and as we, as we take the Lord's Supper today, we're going to eat and drink and celebrate and be reminded of the fact He is with us, He is for us, regardless of what is going on in your life. Know that He is writing His story and that He is writing your story for your good and for His glory. The way that we do this here, we have stations at the front, we'll have stations in the gallery in the back. We'll simply come down the aisle, tear off a piece of the bread, dip it in the cup, and take it and return to our seats. And maybe you're here and, and you're not following Jesus, and that might be because you've got intellectual objections, but it might also be you've got some pain and you've got some hurt that you need to process through. And our hope is that you find this a safe place to explore those questions honestly. And so we would, we would invite you, don't just do some perfunctory religious thing, but take some time and just ask yourself, what's holding me back? What am I afraid of? What is it that I ultimately take most seriously in the world? And what's holding me back from following Jesus? If you want to explore that, uh, we'd love to speak with you after the service. So let's pray. Let's take the Lord's Supper. God, I, I confess, we confess that so many times we, we're oblivious to your presence. So many times we don't recognize that you are with us and that you are for us. Thank you that you're patient with us. When the darkness is, is so thick that we have a hard time seeing when the pain is so intense that we have a hard time feeling your nearness, thank you that you're patient with us. Thank you that you don't leave us and you don't forsake us and you don't give up on us. Thank you that you identify not just with our suffering, but you identify you took our sin, put Jesus on yourself, to die in our place, to rise again. Thank you for the body of Christ broken for us. Thank you for the blood of Christ shed for us. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen.